Well, good morning, everyone, and happy Thanksgiving. It's good to be with you all this morning. It feels kind of strange preaching live. Haven't done that in a while. We'll see how it goes. Usually I get a chance to re-record if I don't like how it goes the first time, but we'd, I'll spare you that pain this time. Um, last fall, I, uh, I went to the Bahamas for a few weeks, about a month after uh, Hurricane Dorian had hit. I don't know if you remember Hurricane Dorian at all. It seems like a while ago. Um, but I was working with Samaritan's Purse on their uh, disaster response team following the storm. Uh, I was involved with their emergency water supply program as we tried to get drinking and wash water to people who had had their regular supplies uh, kind of cut off. And although uh, last fall I didn't experience the power of the storm uh, firsthand, I had to a chance to kind of see what a hurricane could do um, through the destruction that it left behind. So this first photo is of uh, the inside of a local hardware store in the middle of Marsh Harbor. Um, it, uh, Marsh Harbor was the primary city that we were stationed in. Uh, this building was still standing, but it was now more of an open air market, as you can see. Um, the roof of this warehouse had been torn like completely off, um, and, uh, and that was all that was left. And then there was this, this one here. It's a screen capture from a, a video that I took, so forgive the quality. But you'll notice in the background there, these boats, these here are like 50-foot yachts um, that were previously moored just off the left of this photo across the road where we were driving by. And during the storm, they had been, they had been lifted up like toys and tossed inland, and that's about at least 250 to 300 feet inland from where they were moored previously. So it's kind of crazy seeing all this, all this stuff. Um, it was mind-blowing uh, and certainly a bit sobering. As you kind of looked around the city, um, you were kind of struck by the destruction that it had, and you couldn't help but imagine the, the, the toll it had taken um, you know, on, on people's lives. And I'm sure many of us, if we went around the room, we'd all have stories of storms that we've had in our own lives, maybe physical ones that we've ridden out. I know that there's a few of us in here that would have pretty good stories they could tell. Um, personally, I can't think of one that I've actually been through where I've genuinely feared for my safety, where I've actually thought like, wow, how am I going to get out of this? Um, but as we come to the book of Jonah this morning, that's where we find Jonah and the sailors. Um, they are in, a, they're in the middle of a doozy of a storm, the kind of storm that's making these experienced sailors cry out to whatever God that they can put a name to um, because they're scared of what might happen next. So if you've got your Bibles, turn um, with me, if you haven't already, to that first chapter of Jonah that we just had read, and, uh, and we'll, we'll kind of, I won't read it again, but we'll skim through it as we look at the narrative um, that we're, we're studying this morning. So last week, uh, if you were here or listened online, Darcy um, kind of covered the first three verses of the book of Jonah, and we left off with Jonah having been called to go to Nineveh and, and um, him deciding, nope, don't want to do that. So he buys a fare um, on a boat and heads in the exact opposite direction, heads out to Tarshish. Um, and then in verse 4, we pick up the narrative, and the text says that God has caused this great storm to come upon a ship. Everybody's freaking out. Again, they're crying out to whatever God they can think of. They're seriously, they're really afraid. And uh, you'll notice that word fear or afraid repeated several times throughout the passage. And kids, if you're listening and you get bored of my sermon, just maybe go through the passage and count the number of times that you see the word because it's in there quite a bit. 
Meanwhile, while all of this is happening, Jonah is asleep in the bottom of the boat, and the captain wakes him up and says, why aren't you doing anything to help us? Like, what are you doing? Like, cry out to your God, maybe he'll help us. And then apparently in verse 7, at some point, the sailors have realized that this is no ordinary storm that they, they are spiritually aware enough to know that something else is going on here. So they decide that they're going to cast lots to find out who might be able to shed some light on the situation, who might be responsible, or at least who might know. And the lot falls to Jonah. And, and the interesting thing here is they don't, the sailors don't immediately rush to accusing him and throwing him overboard. They don't, they don't rush to violence. Instead, they just grill him with some questions. Who are you? Where are you from? Why is this happening to us? Do you know? And he answers them, um, and he says, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship Yahweh, who created the heaven, the earth, and the sea. And that answer seems to kind of strike fear into the sailors, because now they realize, okay, we know that this guy is running from his God, whoever that is. He already said that. But now this God has a name. He's Yahweh. He's the creator of the sea. So they're like, okay, well, this is obviously your God taking this out on you. So now we're kind of afraid. What are we going to do? But again, they don't throw him overboard right away. They just try to get to shore. They do everything they can to save everybody on the ship. Um, but eventually they realize they're not going to be able to overcome the storm. And, and they give in to what Jonah has asked them to do. And they throw him overboard. And then the sea is calmed and everything works out. And then at the end of the passage, we see in verse 16 that these sailors, these men, actually come to faith in God, in, in the one true God. So verse 16 says this, Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So you might think that based on that, it's hard to know, like, did these guys actually get saved? Um, but commentators actually agree on this point. So um, the the word Lord there that's translated as as all caps Lord is the is the word Yahweh, Jehovah. So that's the covenant name of God in in the Old Testament. It's not the generic word for God, uh, the Hebrew word Elohim, which gets used elsewhere in the passage and then is translated like little g God. Um, In this case, the, the writer is specifically saying they sacrificed, they made vows, they called out to Yahweh himself after after the storm was calmed. So at the end of this, we have the sailors coming uh, to know the God that we know. Uh, And in this first chapter of Jonah's story, we see that God is a pursuing God. We see that he not only pursues his disobedient, wayward Hebrew prophet, he doesn't just let him go running off in the other direction. He sends a a ship-sinking storm to get Jonah's attention. Um, But at the same time, he also brings himself and pursues um, the pagan Gentile sailors who were just caught up in the middle of all of this. The storm that at the outset had led them to fear for their lives ultimately leads them to fear Yahweh and to trust him. And so we see this idea and we'll continue to see it as we go through this book. Um, and, And we see it clearly in the first chapter that God will stop at nothing because he wants to leave no one behind. Stop at nothing, leave no one behind. This is the heart of God. He will stop at nothing. When he leaves the 99 to go after the one, as Darcy alluded to last, last week, that this is the character of God, like sometimes when he does that, he's going to use even storms in his pursuit of the lost. He knows that ultimately storms can turn out for our good. And these storms in our lives, they can often take on very different forms. I mean, consider Jonah's perspective. For, for Jonah, this storm is directly tied to his sin. It's, to, it's tied to his own disobedience. 
He refuses to go to Nineveh, and the result is that he sails straight into a storm. And the hard truth is that sometimes difficulties in our own lives, some challenges, some storms, they are in fact the result of our own poor decisions, our own sin. When we sin, we reject God's commands and his good design for how we're, we ought to live, how we're meant to live, and that has consequences. You know, on, on the one hand, there's clearly a theme throughout Scripture that um, God actively punishes sin, that he moves and, and responds to it. Uh, he is no fan of evil, and ultimately he's not going to tolerate it. And so we read um, verses like Romans 1.18, which, where, where Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. But on the other hand, there's also this theme throughout Scripture um, that sin just simply has negative results in and of itself. Like, we can't lie and expect to have trust in our relationships. We can't withhold from people and expect generosity in return. We can't covet and expect to be content any more than we can eat a Big Mac and expect to get a six-pack. One of my favorite courses in high school was physics. Uh, and one of the basic things you learn in high school physics is Newton's three laws of motion. Uh, formally stated, the third law of motion is that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So when two objects interact with each other, when there's forces traded, there's one moving one way and one pushing the other way. When you push against a wall with your hand, you're going to feel, in some sense, a force back. If you're a skateboarder and, and you're using your foot on the asphalt to push, that's, it's because of Newton's third law that you're going to be propelled forward. Or when I'm, when I'm out with my shotgun, he's shooting skeet or hunting ducks, and I fire the, the gun, I'm going to feel kickback or recoil, and that's a result of Newton's third law. When I fire the shot, I feel the force in the opposite direction. It's just physics. It's the consequences of, of any force. And in a similar sense, when we sin, there are consequences. There's a reaction. Whether it's obvious or subtle, large or small, directly from God or just a natural outcome of our decision, when, when we sin, there is a storm. Now, this, of course, begs the question, is the opposite of that true? Like, if we are in a storm, does that mean that we have sinned? Are all difficulties that we encounter in our lives the result of something that we've done? Well, according to Scripture, the answer is a resounding no. Like, we see that in Job, like, the story of Job, you'll know that he's a, he's a righteous man, he lives well, and yet he still encounters difficulty through no fault of his own. We also see it in the Gospel of John in, in chapter 9 where Christ heals the blind man and people are looking at Jesus saying, like, who sinned that this man was born blind, his, himself or his parents? And Jesus is like, no, neither of them. He was, he was born blind that the power of God might be displayed in him. And then in Jonah, I mean, think of the sailors in this narrative. Like, they are experiencing the storm as much as Jonah is. They are right in the middle of it. But was it their fault? No, not at all. They're just caught up in it. We might be sinners, but sometimes difficulty in our lives isn't because of our sin at all. It's because we happen to live with, love, and interact with other sinners. And sometimes it's just because we live in a broken world. But regardless of where the storm comes from or why it's here, we can trust in God's ability to, and his promise to work in it, through it, and in spite of it, because he will stop at nothing. 
If we find ourselves in a storm that's the result of our own sin, we can trust in the perfect fatherhood of God. That ultimately, his desire for that storm is that it would correct us, redirect us, and refine us. God didn't abandon Jonah in in this passage just to find another prophet to go to Nineveh. He actually went after Jonah. He earnestly desired his repentance and his correction. And sometimes the most loving thing a parent can do is correct their child, even though it might not be immediately pleasant for the child or the parent. Right? The writer of the Hebrews, uh, the writer to the Hebrews, rather, quotes Proverbs and then kind of explains this principle when he says, um, quoting Proverbs, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And then he explains, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You see, when we're in a storm of our own making, the most loving thing that God can do is use it to pursue and correct. And he doesn't do that with the heart of a violent authoritarian. He does that with the heart of a loving father. And when the storm isn't the result of our own wrongdoing, we can take comfort that God is present and he is still at work. The storm is not always his will, but we can certainly trust that it will not thwart his will. And this is what the sailors were experiencing. And it's also what Paul uh, writes about in Romans chapter 8. So um, if you flip with me actually to to Romans 8, if you've got your Bible, um, Laura actually read a verse there from from Romans 8 earlier. And and Romans 8 is a chapter where we have a couple of of kind of well-known verses, like the one she read, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Also Romans 8.28, where um, it says that all things are going to work out uh, for the good of those who love God. But as Paul does, he kind of builds his case far before he gets to those points. Um, and in Romans 8, we can look back a little bit earlier in the chapter, and Paul is explaining how even creation itself groans, experiencing the effects of sin. But there is hope. He writes in Romans 8, verses 18 to 19. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, or the storms of this present time, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is revealed, that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Sometimes these storms just remind us that we live in a broken world, that creation itself is groaning because of this. We experience suffering, death, and pain, and we long for things to be put right. And sometimes we don't even have the words to express the pain that we are experiencing, the questions of why, the desire for things to be different. But Paul reminds us that God's not absent in all of this, and that there will be an end to it. And then he writes in, in verse uh, 26 there, that in the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And it's from that point in verse 26, this reminder that God, by his Spirit, is interceding on behalf of us in the middle of our storms. He feels our sorrow and pain. It's from that point that he writes the words in 8.28, where he says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And it's important to remember as we read that promise, we read these promises in Scripture and particularly in Romans, that these promises don't ignore pain, but they exist in the middle of it. 
These promises don't diminish sorrow, but they do defy despair. You know, some of us in this room right now might be in the middle of, of sorrow, unimaginable sorrow, and you're not really feeling this kind of promise very deeply. You know, and at different points in our lives, we are all going to find ourselves in the middle of pain, physical or emotional, and it will be very, very real. We know that we're supposed to have an eternal perspective. We know that we're supposed to be assured from Romans 8.28 that God's got a plan. But we can't possibly see how this situation that we're in could work out for good. Just know that this promise in Romans, it's not a trite, like, look on the bright side, it'll work out, just cheer up. It's not naive to suffering, and it doesn't make light of suffering. Because this promise isn't offered by a Christ, a savior, or a king who stayed on his throne, distant from the storms of life, from suffering, grief, and pain. It's offered by one who entered this world, walked among us, and as Isaiah prophesied he would be, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. When we're in storms, Jesus doesn't ignore our pain, offer us a verse to stitch on a pillow, and then say, just cheer up. In the storms of life, he looks us straight in the eye and says, I know, I get it, I understand. I mean, look at the cross. In the middle of intense physical and spiritual pain, he's holding the weight of the consequences of all of the sin of the world on his shoulders. He doesn't quote Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. He cries out the first line of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ in that moment knew what was beyond the cross. He knew what was coming next. But in that moment, he felt the pain. He felt the sorrow. He experienced the storm, and he's right there in the boat with you. Sometimes it's hard for us to discern what the Lord is up to in the middle of these times, and his intention might not be for us to search out a hidden purpose behind everything we find ourselves in, um, to see what he's doing. We might never know. But nevertheless, we know that God can, he has, and he will continue to use storms in his pursuit of us and in his pursuit of our transformation. Tim Keller writes it this way, the Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of sin, but it does teach that for Christians, every difficulty can help reduce the power of sin over our hearts. Storms can wake us up to truths we would otherwise never see. Storms can develop faith, hope, love, patience, humility, and self-control in us that nothing else can. God will stop, stop at nothing. He will use even storms to pursue us. And he also wants to leave no one behind. In 1994, country artist Tim McGraw released a song called uh, Don't Take the Girl. Uh, the first verse and chorus of the song tells the story of a little boy. Um, he's eight years old and he's going fishing with his dad. His dad wants to bring somebody else along with them. Johnny thinks it's kind of a bad idea. This is how the first verse of the song goes. Johnny's daddy was taken in fishing when he was eight years old. Little girl came through the front gate holding a fishing pole. His dad looked down and smiled. He said, we can't leave her behind. Son, I know you don't want her to go, but someday you'll change your mind. And Johnny said, take Jimmy Johnson, take Tommy Thompson, take my best friend, Bo. Take anybody that you want, as long as she don't go. Take any boy in the world, but daddy, please don't take the girl. 
Now, if you know the song, it's not how it ends. There's more to it. But this opening part came to mind when I was considering our passage this morning. Because, man, Jonah sounds a little bit like Johnny. Like, oh, man, come on, God. Anybody but the Ninevites. I'm not going there. And he hops into a boat and he heads off in the other direction because he doesn't want to go to the pagan city in Assyria. He wants to leave Nineveh behind. But the book of Jonah is full of irony and contrast. It seems to be one of the main ways that it teaches us. And this morning's passage is no exception to that. Jonah wanted to avoid preaching to the pagans. He wanted to hold back the message. He wanted to restrict it to Israel. So when called to Nineveh, to another people, to pagans and Gentiles, he, he flees. But the irony is that through the storm, he ends up interacting with pagan Gentile sailors anyways. And the very kind of people that he was trying to avoid preaching to, they end up getting saved. And throughout this whole passage, the sailors and their character kind of stand in contrast to Jonah. While the storm rages and they're working as hard as they can to save the boat and save everybody on the ship, Jonah is asleep. When the lot falls to him, they give him a chance to speak rather than just resorting to violence and throwing him overboard. And even when it's confirmed that this is all Jonah's fault, that they're in the middle of the storm because of him, they don't immediately throw him over. Not even after he tells them to. They do everything they can to get that ship to shore instead. And then finally, when they have no other option, they do give in, but they do so with fear and trembling, and they pray to Yahweh, don't hold it against us. And then they toss him overboard. This hardly seems like a lot of vile, ungodly pagans, if you ask me. Like, they come out looking a whole lot better than our friend Jonah, who's disobedient and nationalistic. In this sequence of events, if we're honest with ourselves, like, we look at it, and yeah, like, whose behavior points more towards the heart of God? Is it the pagans or the prophets? Again, quoting Tim Keller, he points out that uh, this contrast that we see between Jonah and the sailors is a graphic portrayal of what theologians have called common grace. The doctrine of common grace is the teaching that God bestows gifts of wisdom, moral insight, goodness, and beauty across humanity, regardless of race or religious belief. Another way of stating it, or at least a similar concept, is that all of humanity is created in the image of God, the imago Dei. It might be a broken image, a poor reflection at points, but the truth is that God has left traces of himself, hints of himself, portions of his character, his heart, and his goodness in every culture, geography, and individual. Therefore, each one has worth, value, and dignity. And if we're careful, careful and we're humble enough, we might just learn something from other people about God, regardless of where they come from or what their faith is. Just like if Jonah had paid attention to the conduct of the sailors, he would have seen God's heart reflected in them. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about universalism here. I'm not saying that everyone on earth knows the Lord in a way that's going to ultimately save them. But when we understand the concept of common grace, it becomes obvious to us that Jonah's position of nationalism and tribalism, his distaste for taking the message to Nineveh, like that's an entirely untenable position. It is not at all in line with the heart and the character of God. To every culture and community, whether at home or abroad, regardless of how morally upright or morally corrupt, God has gone before us and he has left traces of himself there. And he wants us to go too. 
He doesn't want to leave anyone behind. And if we are asleep, as Jonah was in the bottom of the boat, we must in humility wake up, have a look around us to those in our neighborhood, whether inside or outside of the faith, and remember, we're all in the same boat. And we should, as the sailors did, seek the good of everybody around us, both as it concerns our community's immediate earthly physical needs, but also as it concerns their ultimate spiritual ones. Because God doesn't restrict his pursuit of the lost or his, or his love to a certain people group or anything like that. Like when you read the balance of scripture, Old and New Testament, that's plain to see. And it's obvious in the book of Jonah too. Even though Jonah himself kind of stands as a, a contrast to that. He stands in opposition to it as a sort of antithesis of the heart of God. And I don't know about you, but when I, when I like look at Jonah, if I'm honest, like his character in this story, it kind of frustrates me. Like, I find myself thinking, Jonah, man, like, give your head a shake. Like, how can you not see this? Or other times I think, oh, you, you totally do see it. You just don't like it. You don't care. And I, and I kind of write them off as a lost cause. And I wonder if I do that with anybody today. Like, is there, I, is there somebody that I think is beyond saving? Like, who do we look around at, whether inside our faith or outside of it, and feel, man, you just don't get it. You're too far gone. You're not worth my time. Because that is emphatically not how God felt about Jonah. He didn't just let him go. He went after him. And praise the Lord that he came after me too. To Jonah, it was, it was Nineveh. They were the ones that were beyond salvation or just not worth it. But God said to him, Jonah, no, I want them. And I want you too. And God was willing to do whatever it took, storm included. Because he will stop at nothing. Because he wants to leave no one behind. And again, while Jonah might on the balance be sort of a, a poor example for us, resistant to the heart of God, not exactly someone to emulate, um, if we are aware enough and, and we pay attention, we can actually still see echoes of the gospel even, even in him. Because you might remember the story of another man who was asleep on a boat in the middle of a violent storm with a bunch of guys who were used to being on the water. And as the wind came up and the waves were breaking over the side of that boat and it was sinking, the disciples came to Jesus as the sailors did to Jonah and they asked the very same question, do you not care that we are going to die? And both Jesus and Jonah awoke and they calmed the storm in their own way. In chapter 1 verse 12 of Jonah, like he does, he does maybe the only noble thing that he's done so far in the story. He says, throw me overboard, I'll go. To save you, I'll give myself. And while in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus calms the storm, he wasn't literally thrown overboard in that moment, but you can't help but see how Jonah's giving of himself foreshadowed Christ's ultimate sacrifice when he calmed the storm of sin by giving himself for us. Like any doubt that God is a pursuing God willing to do anything to reach anyone, any doubt of that died on the cross with Jesus. And in that moment, Christ experienced the equivalent weight, the terror, and the pain of any storm that we are trying to ride out. At the cross, we see that we are not alone in the boat. And at the empty grave, we have assurance that calmer waters are ahead. The second verse of Tim McGraw's song, Don't Take the Girl, tells the story of Johnny this little, and this little girl 10 years later as high school sweethearts. 
And then McGraw finishes the song with, with this final verse and chorus. Same old boy, same sweet girl, five years down the road. There's going to be a little one, and she says, it's time to go. Doctor says the baby's fine, but you'll have to leave, because his mama's fading fast, and Johnny hit his knees, and there he prayed, take the very breath you gave me, take the heart from my chest. I'll gladly take her place if you'll let me make this my last request. Take me out of this world, but God, please, don't take the girl. May God transform our hearts like that into hearts of love, service, and sacrifice for our neighbors, whether near or far. May we stop at nothing. May we desire to leave no one behind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your heart and your goodness. We thank you that you pursue us, that you are relentless, and that even when we are unfaithful, you are faithful. I pray that you help us to... Uh, maintain a perspective that remembers that you are ultimately in control, that you are ultimately using situations in our live, lives for, for our good. And when we have no idea what you're doing, Lord, may we, just, may we just hold on to your goodness, to your character and your heart. And may, may we share that heart with others. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.